Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Screen and Needle podcast, where my compadres and I get to select one film, one album, and a top five list each week to be reviewed and discussed over a pint or two. I hope you'll join us for a drink and some daft chat about pop culture. My name is Will Holden, and I am joined today by Marcus Aurelius Maximus Wall. How are you, man? All good. I, I could have done with an afternoon pint as well. So I'm going to <laughs> get those juices flowing to uh, yeah. get on it now. And I'm also joined by Andy Pandy Mandy Patimkin Melbourne. How are you doing, sir? I didn't know that you knew my real name. But, uh... <laughs> so, like Rumple Stiltskin, and you. What happens to Rumpel Stiltskin to turn into snakes? I'm not sure I've ever read it. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> I don't know if that's the thing. I'm all good, thanks. But the couple of cheeky afternoon pints has made me tired. <laughs> Professionals to the end. Mm. Today, as always, we are here to talk about three things. A film, an album, and a top five list. As per our usual usualness uh we will begin with the film and that is 2016's your name um it is written and directed by makoto shinkai and because we i presume all watched the dubbed version yes then i will yep. give michael Sinterniklas and stephanie shea as the two main voice actors i'll give you the uh, imdb pitch Two strangers find themselves linked in a bizarre way. When a connection forms, will distance be the only thing to keep them apart? Lovely voiceover voice. Thank you. Might be worth money in the future. Wanna hit the cafe later? Thanks, but I gotta go to work. I can't stand this place anymore. It's too small and towny. Please make me a handsome Tokyo boy in my next you mention it, I do feel like I've been having weird dreams lately. I could dream about someone else's life. What is this? <sighs> Mark, why did you pick this one? Just thought it would be a bit different to stuff we've done before. I came across it because after the sad death of uh, Studio Ghibli, I don't know if it's still going in some ways, but it's 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 pretty much not what it was, is it? At least there's there's no Miyazaki films, at least, and I think Ghibli on the whole is is pretty dead in terms of new movies. Mm. Um, and I came across this guy being mentioned a lot as you know someone in maybe not a similar vein, but it's obviously anime, so like the sort of heir apparent <laughs> of heir yeah. apparent of the anime gods. That's it. And I'd watched it before and it had struck me as interesting at the very least. 
but yeah, uh, why don't you start, Will? What did you, oh, what did you have to make of it? Passing the book back. So this is the first time I've seen this. And on the whole, I thought it was pretty good. It goes about on a body swap story in the kind of the first hour or so uh, between Taki and Mitsua. As they are a sort of young boy and a young girl, Taki is a boy in Japan, the big city, and Mitsua is a young girl kind of out in the traditional countryside, almost sort of feudalish Japan. And uh, they swap places and experience each other's lives uh, to sort of hijinks. And um, it was during that sort of first hour that I wasn't super fussed, if I'm honest, that it seemed seemed to just hit all of the very ordinary beats of that Freaky Friday-esque caper. And it wasn't it wasn't awful by any means, but it just felt quite ordinary. Then it hits its midway point and the time dilation twist between their body swap story. We should just say, I, I feel this is, because we never have said this, but we're just openly going to talk about oh. the movie. So if anyone ever actually <laughs> listens to this... If you haven't seen it, you probably should watch it first because it is quite, I don't know, it's, there's certain that, things which would spoil the, the crap out of it, I feel like. It's a well-timed spoiler alert because, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. Gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to spoil it now. <laughs> but I thought that that moment and that revelation and the way that that changes the dynamic of the film and the meaning of the body swap really picked it up for me. Uh, I still had a couple of reservations about the rest of the film, but at least I was much more interested in its premise once that element of it was revealed. Yeah, I, I, I pretty much totally agree. For me, there was literally a scene that was the switch for me. Again, didn't dislike the first half, but I wasn't heavily invested. I don't think it's even half. I think it's maybe the first third. When he gets to Itamora and... Um, finds out about the comet. Yeah, basically from that moment, I really enjoyed the rest of the film because I thought they obviously set the the kind of um, the concept, and I think that I think that's a bit slow anyway. It's established, and then they keep kind of establishing it. But yeah, it sets it up to almost be this sort of cheesy Freaky Friday thing. And I think, in fairness to them, they do stay away from that. Like, there's not a lot of hijinks in the first half there's the odd moment that's sort of a bit stupid body swap comedy you know like the guy constantly fondling his boobs when he's inside the <laughs> girl's body but there isn't that many moments of that sort of thing but yeah i think as soon as the as soon as that scene happened i was kind of invested for the rest of the film mm. i think as we're going full bore spoiler we might as well state that there's a three-year time gap between Taki and Mitsua, and Mitsua is three years in the past by Taki's uh, point of view. And what Taki and his friends find out is that three years ago, her entire village was destroyed by a part of a comet that was passing over Japan as sort of national news and keeps being referenced. 
throughout the film, but a piece breaks away and destroys the town and everybody in it. So yeah, there's all of that. And I agree, like that was where my investment came from, like finding out that Mitsui and all of her family uh, and all of those people in that town like were already dead, but there's some vague potential of, kind of fixing the scenario. Yeah. So, firstly, I'll just say I think it, I do think it's a, a hell of a twist. It really grabs me. I'm exactly the same as you guys. Um, certainly, the first time round, not knowing it was coming, I assumed there would be some aspect to it which was a little bit out there. But it, it really does go quite. I don't know if it's sci-fi. I suppose, well, it is, isn't it? Because it's it's to do with uh, time travel in in a sense and. Uh, yeah, that twist really works. I think the second half of the movie is infinitely better than the first. Mm-hmm. I also got really caught up because I'm a a wuss or a sap or whatever you want to call it. Um, Too romantic. Yeah, I, well, that's it, mate. You know. <laughs> so I, I was, uh, I was, I was pretty invested by the end. I was, yeah. uh, you know, I was, I was on the edge. I was, I was emotional, and I, I wanted them to, uh, I wanted them to get together. You know. I, I wasn't sure where the film was going to end. And I, I, you know, it was one of those where they kept on passing and I kind of, you know, I was genuinely worried. I, I didn't know if they were going to go for the, for the happy ending sort of thing. Yeah. I was emotionally invested in it. I agree. I, I enjoyed that little additional jeopardy where mm-hmm. in reality, like she could have just turned up three years later. She knows where Tacky is because they've sort of shared a memory of a moment. And that could have been it. And they met up and the credits roll. And But adding that additional layer of Mitsui and her people and her village survive, but they both forget who the other person is and just have the vaguest memory. The sort and of then, mem- memory yes. bleed is the... Uh, it's a bit loose, is it? isn't it? Yeah, but it's sort of intrinsic to it, I think. Like Without <clears> that, <throat> you just lose all the kind of like jeopardy of it and like i agree with you mark like i was sort of invested as well there's genuine like heart to it it's a real like like honest film i think and yeah all of that comes from like the memory bleeds the sort of fact that all of these things that happen when they switch bodies are just it seems almost impossible for them to they just have vague recollections of it it's almost impossible to keep hold of those memories yeah indeed Certainly, as ever with these things, after you've had that initial emotional response to it, though, the second time around, I mean, I didn't remember it that well, but I remembered the the way the story went, and I immediately just started to pick it apart, which I wasn't really doing on the first viewing. So a couple of, I mean, firstly, as you said, like tonally, I just think it's a bit of a jumble anyway. Like it doesn't go overboard, Andy. You mentioned it; it never goes too far into the sort of comedy, or but it does have that very Japanese, over-the-top kind of anime thing, which I don't really like. Uh, just exaggerated responses and kind of, you know, really, I don't know, J-pop. Is it even J-pop? It, it's it feels like a very kind soundtrack. of soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, the it's soundtrack is is a J-pop band. Like, it's a specific... I can't remember who, but I, I looked it up, and it was a I think a they're called Rad J-pop. Wimps. Right. That yeah, sounds, yeah, that rings a bell. Because it's, it's a bit of a mix, but anyway, some of the songs are very kind of, you know, I don't really know how to describe it for better than just, like, it feels like it's kind of made for teenage girls. 
J-pop. J-pop's exactly right. I actually remembered thinking when the main like credit theme was on. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, actually, I really like this theme. It is super, super <laughs> But yeah, actually, of... by, by the end of the film, I was kind of done with uh, the soundtrack. Yeah, agreed. But I suppose a couple of questions about the, the practicalities of it. So, you know, I bought it entirely the first time around, but the second time I was thinking, well, these two people, they don't know each other because they've inhabited each other's bodies. Like, so they know their life to an extent, but they don't know each other particularly other than through a load of memos or whatever that they're leaving on a phone. But, yeah, and I suppose other people's reactions to who they think they are. But I get your point. Like, they, they don't have a conversation with each other. But I think that the relationship is built on the fact that over time, each one of them kind of improved the other one. Like, whilst yeah. they were in they, their body, they sort of began to appreciate the other person's kind of point of view and like I think that's the kind of touching thing with their relationship I will say actual actually I didn't need there to be any sort of romantic notion going on there like I think it was Mm. quite a sort of touching story about like friendship they still could have been desperate to find each other um, because they'd impacted each other's lives like so much I didn't need there to be a romantic element to it yeah, I, th- I think that's valid. And they, they really only lean into that through, I think he writes, I love you on a hand or something like that. It's the last and, like 10 minutes of the film, yeah. really. There isn't any sort of massive clue towards that before it. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I, I, I guess that's it. I just don't necessarily buy a romantic love through the fact that they've just been in each other's bodies. And... The other thing which struck me, which is, you know, you can pick anything apart at the end of the day, but they're constantly on each other's, on their phones when they're in the other's body and living a life. Are you telling me that, you know, they've they've never, particularly when they're writing memos and diary entries and all of this kind, that they're not looking at the date? It's a good point. Interesting point, yeah. I mean, it literally shows shows the date, doesn't it? It just never shows the year. Yeah, like, <laughs> which, that doesn't exist on their phones. Well, like, yeah, and, and maybe it doesn't. I just It's one of those stretches, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, you can do it with any time travel film. Yeah, I know, yeah. Well, I know, you know what? Right. It doesn't, it doesn't on mine. Mine says just uh, day, date, and uh, month. doesn't tell me what year it is. Yeah, it doesn't tell yeah. you that you're in 1993 right now. No, they may they may have seen it at some point within. I I don't know what the time span is. How how many times they're in each other's bodies? But I feel like it's a lot. It seems like plenty, doesn't it? Where by the time you get to the end, I mean, yeah, they, they're potential inconsistencies. I must admit, didn't occur to me uh, during the me watch. Neither. I spoke to um, Sam Bates, our previous podcast guest, the other day, and he said, "Like, what's a podcast film?" And when I said what it was, he said, oh, that's supposed to be really good, but I've not watched it because I didn't like the animation style. And one of the big pluses... Interesting. Yeah, one of the big pluses for the film for me is that I thought everything in it looked superb. Like, I love the animation of it. Like, I think... I I think it looks excellent. It's so varied as well. Like, you've got... Mm -hmm. Well, what you've already referenced, Will. Like, you've got the, the village sat into the mountains with, like, glorious landscape. In a city like Tokyo, where skyscrapers, mm-hmm. you know, touch the skyline, and 
even the like train station and the kind of industrial things and it looked great like i think the look of the film yeah. gets an extra point for me on rating because i thought everything looked superb in it agreed there was one particular moment i think is it when he drinks when taki drinks mitsui's sake oh that, the, that whole bit after that the like the art tr- style of it's so cool yeah, it goes it goes really psychedelic and he sort of drops through the water and becomes the comet and and it's super colorful and it's really like water, fluid almost like a watercolor drawing i was thinking you know like a really think, abstract yeah. type watercolor as you said i think the real world sort of stuff prior to that is just a very detailed and very high quality like animation and illustration a couple of moments of kind of parallaxing where you have different layers of the landscape and as the camera pans across they move at different speeds and it gives that impression of of depth and they do it sometimes with like trees when they're in the um in the village and with the tall city blocks and how they sort of move past each other, which is just a, a super nice animation effect. I'm, I'm impressed. Very impressed. Never I heard like the that. word parallaxing before. And uh, I'm definitely going to use that in the future to sound clever. I hope it's right. I mean, for your sake, because uh, if you use it and somebody calls you out on it. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, a, there's, an intre- there's a mix of animation styles as well. Some of it feels very modern and computer generated. I don't know if it was. Some of it feels hand drawn. Some of it sound feels painted. Like some of the some of the shots almost look photorealistic. But I, I can see Sam's point about it maybe not looking appealing on the surface, because it's definitely not traditional. It does feel like a more modern modern style. Mm-hmm. And it's also not um, flashy, you know, as a lot of anime is about motion and impact mm-hmm. and and it's none of those things it's a very grounded sort of story outside of the the, the time travel body swap aspect no um, i think that's that's really right i think the world is although there's kind of magical or like sci-fi elements to the story the kind of concept of the story is quite grounded in like a real world i think it looks like a lived in real world like mm-hmm. it is gorgeously drawn and stuff, but it's, yeah, it's a world grounded in reality. I really just like the aesthetic of animation generally. Um, there are moments, a lot, a few, quite a few moments where you see clouds. And I think the clouds are just one of the best drawn things in this, both in motion when you're passing through them or just sat still. There's something so aesthetically pleasing to me about how those clouds were drawn and shaded. <laughs> I don't know. I, again, I just come back to the thing. I mean, the, the the body swap is already a kind of out there thing, but as you said, it has been done many times before. I did I did really like the fact that it just took a complete U-turn. I've never seen a body swap film that genuinely has some like heart to it, and you know, mm. I think it's in the the fact that Jeopardy isn't swapping back, which tends to be the the thrust of a lot of body swap films is two people have swapped and they need to swap back and need to sort of figure out how, or that'll often be the message of the film is they do some nice deeds and then they get to swap back. Yeah. But this, the jeopardy of this isn't that because they swap back all the time. It's when one of them's asleep, they wake up in the other, other person's body. That's not the problem. The problem is Mitsui is going to be hit by a comet <laughs> and, uh, and die. 
Although I said that the first half of the film, well, I think we've all said that, you know, the second half is stronger than the first. I, I think it does establish as well that helps its kind of emotional, like, undercurrent. I, I mean, the kind of, they're obviously searching for each other in the second half of the film. And um, because they don't know exactly what they're searching for, because their memories are so vague, they're kind of searching for, they're not sure whether it's a person or a place. But I think the first mm-hmm. half of the film does establish that sort of idea of her, like, searching for a like place in the world and not quite feeling like she fits in and that sort of thing. Definitely. I think there's definitely like a sort of an emotional like padding beyond the story that adds a little bit of extra heart to it. Yeah, I agree. Did anybody have any opinions about the extended cast? We've spoken about just really the main two characters that the story heavily revolves around, but I thought there was some kind of amusing characters around and about these the main two's lives there's some quite like sweet relationships there yeah like you say like i mean the guy who helps her uh, just sort of takes on board her like mad story like there's no well i know she doesn't exactly say it but he has no reason there's no evidence that he's presented with why there's a comet about to hit it and yet he's kind of prepared to break the law to try and evacuate the town and even little things like with tacky when uh she's in his body and he hasn't got his lunch at school and uh and his mates sort him out yeah his mates just like bang two of their like bits of food together to give him a sandwich and stuff like the relationships i think are quite sweet yeah Um, i think it gives the main characters a bit more depth as well and shows us the audience that they are likable people mm -hmm. no they are decent people broadly in their own right I was going to say I'm I'm slightly surprised that it hasn't been remade or something. I, it feels like the kind of thing that Hollywood would usually jump on to me. Hundred percent. Like it, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if there's a live action remake of that because I think it was yeah. massively popular as well from what I've read. Yeah, it's definitely a, a big cult thing, if nothing else. I guess it just comes back down to that balance between the two things. On that one hand, you've got this pretty out there sci-fi thing going on. On the, on the other hand, it's, it just about stays on the right edge of a bad teen romance, I think. Mm-hmm. I think, in fact, I probably talked myself up a little bit in the score because I do. Th- I think it looks really great. And I think the second half of the film, once that the proper premise is, is brought in, but I, yeah, I think that first, I don't know, perhaps 40 minutes, 45 minutes or so, it got boring after about 10 or 15 of it. Um, For me, it just yeah. took way too long to establish its own concept. Like Essentially just, that. Yeah. It was just unnecessary. Like, I get that you need to set that up. Like, you need to establish characters, you need to establish the body swapping thing. And also, you need a little bit of time for their body swapping relationship to grow. And mm-hmm. so I get that you've got quite a lot that you need to establish before you can really like hit home with the story. But I think some of it was just unnecessarily slow. Like I feel like you could have cut 15 minutes out and you wouldn't lose any of that setup. I also think because body swap stories are, are quite commonplace, that it's fairly, I think it's fairly easy to get most audiences up to speed 
quite quickly with just a handful of cliches. Like I say, I think you can do that fairly sharpish and build that relationship just by, because I think it's only there to, to set up the, the second part of the premise. So I, I would say set it up as quickly as possible. Use as many cliches as you need to, to get the message across, but get on to that second part as, as quickly as you can. Yeah. Should we uh, score it up? Ready to scores? Yeah. I wrote down a seven and I've not talked to myself or pour down. I'm going to stick with seven. I think the second half of it is superb. Like the second half of it is an eight or a nine. The first half of it is a five or a six for me. Um, and yeah, seven feels about right. I, I definitely recommend it to anyone. I think it's very watchable, but um, yeah, it takes too long to establish its its core. Uh, which is why it only scores a seven, even though the second half is so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll also go with a seven, but I think first time it would have been an eight or even a nine because the emotional stuff worked. I was so invested the first time around. It was pathetic. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, as I say, you know, tears weren't exactly flowing, but uh, if you had a heart, they would have been. Yeah, exactly. So it did It did drop second time around. But yeah, I still think it's good and I still think it's definitely worth watching for sure. I think I'm a, against my own rule, like a seven and a half. So I'm going to be generous as you've both given it seven. I'm going to bump mine up to an eight. I think uh-huh. I started at around a six and talked myself up to a seven. And I was kind of debating had I taught myself up enough to go for the eight. and. I was somewhere in between, but yeah, I'll, I'll be, I'll be pro film and give it an eight. Nice. Yeah. Look, I'm closer to an eight than I am a six with my seven. Sure. It's um, the, the second half is fantastic. And yeah, I don't disagree with Mark, like very heavily invested in the story as well. Okay. Great stuff. With that, then we shall move to part two, uh, which is the album Windswept Adan by Ichiko Ioba. brought you across this album marco funnily enough if you remember speaking of sam we mentioned him before uh, a few weeks back when we had him on and i mentioned during his album pick which i think was tongue uh, that i'd not really been rushing to listen to it because i'd found something else which i really liked and that that was this basically now i will say it wasn't necessarily specifically this album although this was the first one i really listened to but i just listened to a bunch of her stuff which will give you a sense of where i'm going to go with it i also thought whilst obviously i have a certain opinion on it i could see others like you guys having a very different one potentially so i thought it would be interesting andy go first for me please 
I think although it's stylistically quite different, I'm going to end up saying quite a few of the same things that I said for your last pick, Mark, which is Stereo Lab. There's lots of sort of interesting things about it. I kind of thought if it was the soundtrack to a like Zelda-esque fantasy game, that I'd probably go away and say, like, I quite like the soundtrack to that. But actively listening to it, I found it kind of difficult to keep going back to. I, I just found it kind of boring, to be honest. There is variety in there, in that, like, the instrumentation changes all the time um, and things like that, but there's no kind of dynamic range. There's no sort of tempo variety. There's no hooks. There's no real harmony. There's sort of nothing that I look for in music about it. I was trying to pick out a song as like my favorite track, but even listening to the album like three or four times, actually I didn't recognize them listening to them again. I just found them kind of forgettable. And and this is being incredibly harsh because there were lots of positive things about it. And like I say, the reason I say my criticism is going to be similar to the Stereo Lab one is that there's clearly a good level of musicianship and stuff there. Her voice is very good it's obviously not sung in english but you certainly get like it's emotive even without the lyrics like i understand what emotions she's trying to convey so yeah musically i can kind of praise it for things but ultimately i didn't enjoy it i'm afraid to tell you i'm in a very similar position um I think you summed it up quite nicely by saying it does. It sounds like a soundtrack to a video game, but one that I've never played and have no emotional attachment to. And I found myself listening to this, not purposely, but just sort of while doing other things because I would often forget I was listening to it and it just became a, a sort of background sound for me. I think you've pointed out a lot of the things as well. Like it, I feel a bit bad <laughs> about it because as a singular like track, I think if you played me one song, I'd think, oh, this is pretty cool. Like it, it has a very pleasant sound. And I mean that in the, in a musical sense, like it is orally nice <laughs> going now. Um, and as Andy said as well, there's loads of different instrumentation, but in the end, each song sort of sounds the same somehow. They all sort of morph into, into one thing. I do think I have one favourite song. There was a song that, for whatever reason, its melody caught my ear and, and sort of dragged me back in to, to more focused listening. But on the whole, I've, I've got to agree with that. Um, I found it difficult to focus on Saz. Right. So I absolutely love it. <laughs> Sorry. I think it's, uh, I mean, she's immediately one of my favorite artists of all time. I think she's unbelievable. Um, now I will say, as I mentioned before, that maybe this album wasn't the best starting point. The reason I chose it is because it has, orchestration in and stuff like that all her other albums are literally just her and acoustic guitar so also some of them are rather long 
some of them are a bit short, but I hadn't listened to all of them at this point. So it's difficult for me to just narrow it down to just this record because I think some of her biggest strengths are not always shown on this record. I think she worked with like a kind of another guy for the first time in her career who probably did some of the sort of orchestrational stuff. And it is way more soundscapey, like a lot of it is almost ambient. And I think it was written kind of as a soundtrack, effectively. Um, I think it was like to do with the ocean or whatever, and it was written in that way. Agreed, if you've not got the sound, you, you know, if you haven't seen the film, it's soundtrack for it, I can see that not working. And I do think it. the first track does nothing for me. It's an example of pure ambience but one of her biggest strengths to me is she's written I mean her melody writing is phenomenal to my mind um and I do think there's examples of that on this album not not as many as her previous ones which are just far more straight songs this is more ambient but I still think there's some absolutely beautiful writing going on that's interesting Um, because I did I found her melodies a little bit Boring's a bit harsh, actually, because it's not, they're not uninteresting melodies. They just, I didn't find that they had any earworm quality to them at yeah, all. And I was thinking, I was thinking about this. I would say whole... after, after four listens, I still couldn't, I, 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 I could yeah. have put on a different album and I wouldn't have noticed. Like I just, but... nothing, nothing about her melodies stayed with me at all. And like I say, they're not. I was going to say boring and just thought it was incredibly harsh because they're not uninteresting, but I just found completely forgettable. Yeah, I mean, I I disagree. And I was thinking about this a lot. I mean, I don't... Because when I was listening to it initially, I found it completely enchanting and intoxicating. And again, it does that thing I love where it takes me to a different place completely. But I, I agree that there wasn't so much like, oh, that that song really sticks out to me or anything like that. It's not an album of hooks. And I started to think, well, is catchiness and indictment of, of quality? And my answer is no, it's not. I think Certainly it's completely, not different, completely different to the stereo lab, which I'm in complete agreement with you was just wholly average and doesn't have the melo- melodic interest there. This one absolutely does. And the reason is, is because and obviously you guys didn't feel the same, but whilst I couldn't necessarily remember the melodies, I always remember them going into interesting places and I wanted to revisit that world and become more familiar with them. And now I'm at the point where I could probably sing the melodies to most of the songs on the album. And I would start, I had this thing where I would lie in bed before going to bed and just listen through one of our albums. This one, I did it a few times. And... I didn't fall asleep. I wasn't getting distracted by anything else. I just became completely at one with her music or whatever. And I'd wake up the next morning and just like the chorus to a certain song or just a, you know, bridge moment or whatever would come into my head. And I just want to go back to it. Um, Yeah, I think it's a completely different kettle of fish to Stereo Lab. But I do understand why... It wouldn't necessarily land for you. It's it's not music that you can put on whilst driving or like, you know, pottering about doing stuff. I think you have to completely throw yourself into it. 
And if it's not grabbing you enough to do that, then yeah, I think it never enough. held it never held my attention long enough for me to discover those melodies. I, I don't. Even though there is one song, like I say, I picked out that that was the one that every time it came around would my ears would prick up a little bit. Even that, I couldn't couldn't hum it to you now. I don't know yeah. what that melody is. Yeah, I quite often listen to music when I'm cooking, and mm-hmm. then I'll either go and watch TV whilst I'm eating, or if it's something that I'm really enjoying, I'll just like sit in the kitchen and carry on listening to music. And with the podcast albums, I quite often like. You know, if I've got halfway through an album or whatever, I'll um, finish it off. So there were times where I was doing nothing other than listening to the album. And Mm -hmm. I do get what you mean as well. Like it's, I can get why it would be like quite evocative and sort of take you to another place. It never did that for me. Like I, I never... If I wasn't listening to it for the podcast, I would have just flicked over to something else. I didn't mind it on in the background. There's nothing, obviously, there's nothing offensive about it. It's very easy, listenable in terms of, like, the timbre of it. And I couldn't always tell when, like, tracks changed. Mm-hmm. And it was only after a couple of listens that I realised the instrumentation is so different across it. Like, the songs have completely different instrumentation one to the other. Uh, and yet establish like such a similar sound. And like I say, I think that is because of the, like I say, all the dynamics just sound in the middle. Uh, the tempo variation across the album is minimal. Like I think, yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I think because all the songs are so similar stylistically that even when the instrumentation changes, they're kind of just doing the same thing anyway. So, yeah, my point is, anyway, I can completely understand that taking you to another world, but I did actively listen to it um, a couple of times and never, never found that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was obviously exactly the opposite, because whilst you were just thinking I'd flick over to something else, any time I was listening to something else, I was flicking back <laughs> to this. Um, I mean, again, it is difficult just to talk about this album. Like, there's... She's one of the strongest melody writers for me that I've come across for years. And it's not because they're necessarily super catchy. It's it's more I think her her closest musical comparison is is classical music, to be honest. And it's not because there's strings and stuff. I just think her her style of melody writing is is very I mean, the fact is it does not matter to me in the slightest that I don't understand what she's saying. Her like voice could be just be an instrument to me. No, it wasn't a big put off for me as either. Um, I I agree with their like classical music comparison as well. I wrote down like chamber folk <laughs> that like it's, yeah, it's a... quite like <laughs> there's occasionally sort of folky melodies, but it's very uh, yeah, not, not because of the um, not because of the instrumentation or the like you know, that it's kind of scored, but there's definitely a, like, chamber orchestra feel to a lot of the songs. That, yeah, that's usually sure. That's usually a positive to me as well. Like, I usually, like, that isn't something that will put me off in the slightest. Just didn't work for me in this example. Again, I just think her vocal melodies, in combination with her choice of chords, are just leagues and leagues above most folk music. I also think she's kind of unique. I, there's there's not really much that I've heard that sounds like it. And I get that some of it 
sounds the same, that's fine. If something's good, then do more of it. Obviously, you guys didn't agree it was good. I would. I almost wish I had chosen a different record because I do think there's just stronger songs, and I don't think with this one she was just going for a load of, of bangers. Basically, she was going for an atmospheric, like textural approach. And yeah, there's still plenty of occasions where I just think the, you know, the line she comes up with are just stunningly beautiful, essentially. I mean, some of the uh, chords she's coming up with are absolutely wild, really. All all of the stuff that you guys have said in other stuff, like, you know, where, you know, dissonance leading into a resolution it's all over the place. There's loads of interesting jumps and like unexpected chord changes, but she always keeps it held together with the vocals. And she does this lovely thing. She does it a couple of times in this album where she will repeat a melodic line a couple of times. The phrase will remain the same. The contours remain the same, but she'll just change a certain note and a certain chord at a certain point. Um, and I absolutely love that. It's done so rarely in music. Um, and she does it quite a bit. She does it on Hagu Pits. Um, I mean, I can't necessarily disagree with you, but the reason being is perhaps because of its homogenous sort of overall sound is I could never focus on it long enough to get, to analyze it to that sort of depth. My mind would just wander and it would just become background sound and that yeah, might, say, that might uh, say more about me and my like uh lack of sophistication but that that's the honest the thing uh, is that honest at, the ti- at times it's literally trying to be background sound i mean it literally has just the sound of you know nature and wildlife like through it and i think that is very much intentional that it's uh yeah i don't find it that interesting sadly yeah i don't <sighs> I just didn't notice any of those things. I'm, I'm not necessarily like argue with you about it. I, just, I don't know. I, I would argue that I didn't think the melodies were that strong. Like I, I, I think just, that, I don't I understand think, that. I don't, how how can you like jazz and not like some of these melodies? They're just so kind of. I don't, I don't like all jazz. And the background kind of instrumental wash behind it. Um, I just think yeah, I mean, it's perfe- I, perfectly nice, but kind of boring. I never thought any of the melodies were like strong enough to carry it. I, I didn't notice huge moments of dissonance. I didn't. I, I didn't write down any chord changes that like stood out to me being particularly interesting. Like I think Will's put it on himself a little bit there, like saying that you know. You know the reason why he didn't notice it but to me they none of those moments jumped out at me and i don't don't think it's a lack of listening like i say i I, and i'm certainly not arguing against their like existence within the music or or the fact that you should or shouldn't like really enjoy that but it, it just never got through to me like that no. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not alone with this. I mean, it, it's and I usually a contrarian. Like, usually, if if something is extremely highly rated, I go the opposite way, <laughs> like because I'm a dick. But uh, I mean, yeah, she is she is very very highly revered. Um, 
by people that listen to her, obviously. Um, and I don't think she'll ever break out or whatever, but yeah, I just, yeah, I'm really surprised about the lack of enjoying the chords or whatever. I mean, some of the, some of the sequences, I mean, there's so many like sevenths, ninths, diminished, augmented, there's like all sorts going on and it's not from an analytical viewpoint. It's just to me, super interesting and engaging, but yeah, it didn't work for you. It didn't work for you. The reason the reason that I made the stereo lab comparison is not particularly because they're in any way similar because they're they're not. But like I always try and analyze things a bit more <laughs> for the podcast than I would normally, obviously. And the fact is, like I don't like that sort of like chamber wash sound. Like it just sort of reminds me of like Enya. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and so, like, I'm sort of criticising it, but, like, deep down I know that, like, I just plain don't like it because I don't like it, which is not a reason to be criticising something. But, like, it was never, mm. however interesting it was, I was never going to really love it because I just don't really like that sort of thing. I think there is a version of of this or maybe that's unfair as well like there are the general sounds of the songs i don't dislike it's just that they sort of blur into a bit of a mental wash for me so i don't know what it what it might be but i can think i can see there is a version of this where i would be more positive about it i don't think it's a write-off for me just for its genre at this sort of stage yeah. Look, I'll give I mean, almost I'll give almost anything a chance. Like I wouldn't want to say that something is a write-off before I've listened to it. Um, there are genres that I don't particularly like where I like one particular album out of it. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. She's got I think six or seven albums before this one, and as I said, they're all just her and an, an acoustic guitar. There is there is no supplementary stuff at all, and I think there probably is more variety on those ones. They're certainly just straighter songs. Maybe that does get to the heart of more of what you were saying as well, and, and makes those chord changes and those melodies more um, obvious or, or available, perhaps. Um, yeah, but I, th- so I, I think there's examples of it on on this on this record as well. I mean. You know, but I, I guess sort of to reiterate your own comments, like there was just other stuff that was more interesting to listen to for me. Um, and it, I struggled to keep coming back to it. And I did like plenty of times and I never hated my listen through, but my, I just, I just wander away from it and my mind would be somewhere else. Not, not taken somewhere else would just be somewhere else. Um, I'm disappointed that neither of you liked it, but, um, it, yeah, it's not changing my mind remotely. I think there's again, she's one no, of my fair play favorite there. artists. Yeah, not, like, not just on a yeah, yeah. I just can't quite get to grips with the facts, but it's unfair just based on this one record. I still think there's show-stopping moments on this album. I mean, uh, I think the opening half is is weaker than the second, to be honest. But I still really like Pilgrimage. I think Porcelain's pretty cool. Easter Lily's lovely. 
I think the last four songs are all brilliant. I think Dawn in the Adan is one of my favorite songs in the last five years, probably. Literally, I just think it's a phenomenal song. And I think while we're talking, how you're not getting uh, like getting memorability or like hooks. As we're talking about that, that is the song that always pricked my ears. Dawn in the Adan was the song that would listening to it in order. I think by the end of the maybe the fourth song, I'm already gone, mm. and then it takes till the twelfth song before I sort of am brought back into the album. And it's I think it's because of the main melody in that song. Having said that, I can't. Like I say it's not m- memorable. It's just, it's just very nice. It's funny because I picked out a, uh, I picked out a song that you've not mentioned <laughs> as my favorite. Okay, uh, which is uh, Sagu Palm's song. I think that's what it's called. Yeah, which I I like as well. But I think that's um, that is an example of where there's hardly any melody, and I think it's just pretty much two chords the it's, entire song it is far just, more of a traditional folk song i was just about to say that like i i actually think that the it's probably the most boring um, <laughs> kind of kind of written song but because yeah there's way less interest it is like two chords and it's yeah those two chords throughout the entire song there's no variety mm-hmm. and um and yeah there's not much else going on i think it moves away a little bit from that kind of yeah like a like um, ambient wash, which I liked, but also I think the melody's quite strong in that one. I got a bit of a, um, although the song doesn't sound like it at all, I got a bit of a like Bell and Sebastian idea from the sort of melody melody line, and it was yeah, one I, that I can one that, that I actually actually recognised when it came round again, which is almost entirely my reason for picking it. I do wish, I mean, probably over half the tracks are just basically ambient washes they're just textural filler Mm. Mm -hmm. i do think that you know i would prefer it without that i I like some of those tracks like i quite like the piano one actually overall i could like lose those and initially the reason i didn't pick one of her acoustic albums is i thought the guys won't probably won't like the fact that it is just you know 10 tracks of her playing an acoustic guitar so i thought this one did have more variety funnily enough compared to her other ones. But I think there's more variety in the songs on her other records. But I would suggest trying some of the other ones or at least, you know, checking out some select songs or whatever. But I I don't know if this record essentially did nothing for you, then it, it might be that her earlier ones don't either. If you just don't dig her style, what she's doing, then... A shtick. Yeah. Look, I'll give uh, any, yeah. anything a chance, man. I'm quite happy to. Uh, yeah, on your recommendation, like others. I'll always, always give more a listen. Um, I sometimes do with with the things that we listen to, and on this occasion, I, I didn't. But um, I'm certainly open to it. Mm. If I hate it, I won't tell you. Um, <laughs> if I, I really, speak if, of it if again. I really like it, I'll tell Please you. <laughs> if I don't talk to you, just presume that I never listen to it. <laughs> No, I want to know if you hate it, so we can argue about it. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. Let's get it do like a text at three in the morning where I assume you're asleep. I hate it, Mark. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's that's fine. I'll uh, I'll accept your uh, opinions begrudgingly. Should we do scores? Is I'll go away. Still thinking that I'm entirely right, and uh... absolutely, and, <laughs> yeah. and so you should.
Okay. Um, I'll just be straight with you. And it's a four out of 10 for me. Worse than tight. Matt Berry. There he is. Good old Matt. <laughs> Good old Matt, the, the bar. <laughs> I thought I thought about this, um, about the old Matt Berry yardstick. Because I'm pretty sure I gave Stereo Lab a four as well. Mm. Um, as another album that I sort of appreciated that there was a bit of musicality going on there. I just didn't really like it. And Matt Berry, there was not a huge amount of musicality going on there, but I did like what he did, kind of, enough to give it a five. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a four from me as well, because it absolutely falls into that that, uh, that range for me. Yeah, Sorry, buddy. bring that average up, Marco. Yeah, it's a ten. There's a... It's probably realistically a nine for me because some of the tracks I could just entirely do without, but I'm I'm going big because going bold. You know, I want to support my love for the artist. And again, I don't say it lightly. Um, you know, if I was to do a top 10 artists of all time for me uh, at the moment, she would be in that list. I think she's yeah. phenomenal. I'm always happy when somebody finds something that they... Like it happens so infrequently that you find something that uh, is really, actually, yeah, yeah, that you're really like excited about. Like changingly, yeah, yeah, it's very I'm, rare. Uh, I'm very, very happy for you that you've uh, found it. Okay, so we round about onto our third and final segment of the show, which is the top five lists. And uh, Mark, this week you have selected the top five opening tracks from albums i thoroughly enjoyed making this list uh, to be honest again it's one where i've got a i've got a top five that i'm happy with but i've also got lots in reserve so i am happy to go further down the order if uh, if anyone else would rather go first i don't mind going first if nobody else wants to go for it go ahead buddy as usual i've tried to get a list well actually i'm not sure i've got that much variety <laughs> Well, I have picked them for a variety of reasons. So at number five, I'm going to go Elliot Smith. I'm going to go Son of Sam, which is the opening track on figure eight. It's a super choice and was absolutely in my long list. I think it's a great song. The reason that I picked it is that I thought, like, I don't think figure eight was, I don't think it's as acclaimed as some of his other albums. I think the it sort of establishes a slightly different sound like it's quite an upbeat upbeat album in a lot of places like it still has those ballads on there sort of more yeah downtrodden songs that i think you the more general close, sadness of elliot smith yeah that you more closely associate with him but i think the reason that i picked it i guess is because i think it's such a good way of just establishing that sound and i love that album it's probably my top 10 albums of all time my favorite elliot smith album yeah sure. yeah i think it's superb and yeah it's like it's got this like honky tonk piano that runs throughout it the i mean there's two like main riffs in it and both riffs are super earwormy i just i think it has more energy to it than some of his other albums 100% yeah like I say there are some some more classic Elliot Smith songs on it but um, and I can't say that Son of Sam is necessarily my favourite track on the album it's probably 
top three, but there's probably a couple of others I prefer. But yeah, I think it establishes that that more high energy feel that figure eight has running through it. And yeah, the, one of the main reasons I like Elliot Smith is because I think his melodies are just so, so strong. And yeah, both in the vocal melody and the and the uh, like hooks in it are, are so good in that song. Uh, so yeah, that's my number five. Lovely stuff. Yeah, top choice. So a bit similarly, I think, to what you were saying there, Andy, some of my picks are because I think the opening track is the literally the best track of an otherwise really good album and sometimes it's a really great album that i think the first track is at least within the top few of that album the first one i'm going to pick falls into that category it's not necessarily my favorite song on the album but it is an album that i really love and it is kielbasa by tenacious day for the album tenacious day that album is endlessly entertaining to me. It is the perfect blend of music and comedy. It starts with a little music writing joke where I think he plays like a C. Now it's not good enough. Plays a C7 nearly and then plays like a C9, I think. And then that's the one. And then the song starts. It's a, it's a funny and cool song in its own right. Like I can say maybe not the very pinnacle of the album. But after, I don't know, 25 years, I could still listen to all of that album. Yeah, look, we've discussed this outside of the podcast before. Me and, you, <laughs> me and you feel exactly the same about that album, and I know Mark doesn't, so I'm 100% behind that pick. I've just not listened to it. So. And Jack Black's vocals are good as well. That they are. <laughs> okay, uh, my number five is uh, Peaches on Regalia by Frank Zappa. Oh, Nice. The only thing I really know about this is uh, that John Robbins really likes it. And I'm a fan of John Robbins, the stand-up comedian and podcaster. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to tell you about that. Nice. Yeah, I just, I'm not actually the biggest Frank Zappa fan by any means. I just find quite a lot of his stuff a bit hard to breach, to be honest. But um, I think that's my favorite song that I've heard of his. It's just a terrific instrumental. It's super fun. Loads of changes, super proggy, but ton of hooks, loads of variety in the instruments and everything. And it's just a super happy, upbeat song. I can't see you ever putting it on. And, uh, you know, it would definitely pass the barbecue test. Let's put it that way. Um, the main test in music journalism. Yeah, the only test. <laughs> <laughs> There's that and the getting on the world playlist, of course. That's the ultimate honour. For... That's the royal honour. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say I know the song, but and I completely agree with that assessment of Zappa as well. Like when he's good, he's great, but sometimes yeah. like impenetrable is the right <laughs> description. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, I need to listen to this 40 times so I understand what's going on. <laughs> I'm not going to dedicate it's... that much time, but I'm, I will check that song out because I don't know it. I, w- I would imagine that you know, Uber fans might kind of look down upon it as like the accessible commercial one, maybe. But you will know it, Andy, because it is the sample that John Roberts and Ellis James use for their show. And I do know it. Cool. At track. least like sort of 10 <laughs> seconds of it, you'll know. But yeah, yeah it is. It... Hearing it in my head right now. Yeah. Now I know which one it is. Uh, great choice. <laughs> Superb song. <laughs> Excellent. Um, sorry, I'm ordering on the fly here. I'm going to go with uh, number four, 
a band that we all like and an album that we like, which is Oh My Heart uh, by Mother Mother from the album. Oh My Heart. Also another great choice. Also on my long list. And um, well, I had a couple. I don't want to say in case there's been other choices later, but I had a couple of Mother Mother tracks as my potential openers. Yeah, um, yeah, agreed. We literally talked about this album the other day. So this yeah. is for the benefit of uh, the, of the listener, listener, the one listener. <laughs> Never gets old. But this album is, it's weird to say it's grown on me because I liked it instantly, but it's become my favourite album by them. And that's, it's hard to pick a favourite track because the album's so good across the across the board, but it has all the elements that I really love about Mother Mother in it. Like the the hooks are so strong, the melodies are so strong. Um, yeah, nice harmonies. It just has everything that I like about it. It's such a good track, and yeah, it just starts off a like generally speaking, although it has its um, you know down tempo bits, like a fairly like high energy high energy album, and it sets the tone for that high energy immediately. Yeah, it's a real pickup at the start of the album, isn't it? Um sort of leave nothing at the door it's also quite a stylistic statement after their first album which is basically almost entirely acoustic yeah yeah i mean obviously i completely agree we all we all love the band yeah um i realized as as well that like there's a couple of bands like this that i know we all like that we probably haven't given that much of a shout out on the podcast before I think sometimes we avoid them because we've all talked about it together. Because but, yeah, because we've talked about it so much individually. But just just in case anyone is listening, go and listen to Mother Mother. Stop listening yeah. to us. Turn us off now. <laughs> well, I mean, my master list is jam packed. Basically, I just went through my favorite albums and picked out the first tracks that were the. So a lot of the, the what comes after will be those shout outs. Yeah, lovely stuff. Uh, for my number four, then. It's, again, it was a couple that I could have picked. I'm going to pick Runaways from XTC's album, uh, English Settlement. There was a few I think I could have picked, including uh, Peter Pumpkinhead, which was a real a real winner for me. But um, Runaways just has such a like cool atmosphere and rhythm and... It's not a very like high energy song, but it's it's got a very I can't think of anything but like cool. Like it's not even really groovy. It's just it's got all about the vibes. Yeah, I, I'm really struggling to put anything more in, intelligent to it, but it just has this kind of cool, slow sort of rhythm to it. A really great like building harmony line about the Runaways. Um, it sets off what is otherwise a, a superb album by one of my absolute favorite bands. So again, big shout out to XTC, go and see them in, in concert if you can. Uh, <laughs> as long as it's for 1986, it'd be fine. But yeah, it could have been, been a few XTC tracks um, because I really love XTC and a lot of what they do. Um, but I went Runaways. That's my number four. Good shout, good shout. Okay, uh, my number four complete kind of stylistic change and going um, Shep Baker, Alone Together uh, from the album Shep, which, um, I don't know, it, it just kind of 
sums up what I like about jazz. I'm not a huge jazz guy, but love a bit of Shep Baker. And I, th- I think it's a, I think it's the strongest song on that album. Just immediately puts you in a super cool, chilled vibe. Love his trumpet playing. It just it's traditional jazz. I don't really know what much to say about it, but I wanted to have something a bit different on it. And uh, yeah, that was my pick. I don't know if you guys know that album in particular. But I think too. Andy might have more to say about it um, than I than I've got because, like yourself, I'm not a huge jazz guy. There are bits that, when I like it, I think it can be incredibly great but jazz is such a huge genre that there's plenty of it that really does does nothing for me chet baker is one of those guys that i just like his sound like his that his tone is it's, it's weird to say on an instrument which there's no real electronic interference with it like it, it is an acoustic instrument and therefore broadly sounds the same from player to player but Jet Baker has, and you're going to tell me differently as a as a player of said instrument. But yeah, it's just nonsense, isn't it? Like you don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't think a player can generate like tone is everything, and uh, and and that is all generated by the player. And Chet, okay, it's ninety percent generated by the player. Like your instrument will help you, but Chet Baker is the perfect example of that point because he played on absolute garbage instruments through his entire career because he never had any money. But that that album's great and Chet Baker's um tone is just it is just better than any any other trumpet player that I've ever heard. Like it's so emotive. Like I, I never even considered like picking from the jazz world. And if I had I probably would have picked that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's super nice. Such a nice chain. Yeah. Cool choice. Uh and Dino, you're number three, I think, buddy. I'm really between two for this, but I'm gonna stick with the one that I originally had, which is Everything in Its Right Place, uh, by Radiohead. The opening track off Kid A. It's probably my favorite track on the album, but it's not the reason that I picked it. Um, actually, it's, it's kind of similar to the Elliot Smith thing that I said, in that they just recorded OK Computer. And I seem to remember reading, watching a bit of a video with Tom York talking about the making of this album and him saying that he just basically had writer's block and was really struggling to write anything. And um and that he decided to write things to just move away from writing on guitar and and writing a rock album, and um, and that the limitations of his own quality on piano was what kind of drew him out of his writer's block. But I mean, it's it's all on synths. It's um, got like you know manipulated vocals on it, and yeah, it has everything about it that makes Radiohead what they are like it establishes their new sound immediately and yeah it's still yeah everything that you love about them i think it's such a good song it was in my uh five originally as well and i remember the when it came out it was played on full on radio and i recorded it onto cassette nice. started about ten thirty at night or something and i remember falling asleep halfway through it with the mindset that like, what is this? Like, 
this is rubbish, basically. <laughs> like, I think um, that was its initial reaction, wasn't it? Because it was so different. Yeah, it was. An it, okay computer. <laughs> well, exactly. And you, you kind of don't think of it now, but at the time it was, uh, it was quite a change up. Yeah, following on from arguably one of the great guitar records of all time. Yeah. Just essentially lose the guitars for the most part. But yeah, it's a it's a phenomenal opener. Obviously, that album grew hugely on me. Mm. Fallen out of favour a little bit with Radiohead over the last few years. But, you know, when I was younger, they were definitely one of my favourite bands. And I, Kid A is definitely in the running for my favourite of their albums. And I agree, that's just a a fantastic opener. It sounds so good as well. Like the sound of it's all, all it needs is the sound of that opening, uh, synth. Yeah. Kind of it's yeah, kind of it's, electric it's, piano. Yeah. It's it, just so warm and yeah. Cool. Is that riff in like 10, four or something? Probably. Like it's, <laughs> it, it just has such a like natural feel to the riff. I think it's in a weird time signature. It's such a like earworm. Despite yeah. it's, <laughs> despite it's like, yeah, Insane non-conventional measure. Mm-hmm. I think that's a um, a really great choice. Weirdly enough, I didn't. I don't know why I didn't really consider any Radiohead. You're up, Will. Okay, number <laughs> brings me on to my number three, which is going to be "Funeral for a Friend" slash "Love Lies Bleeding" uh, by Elton John for the album "Goodbye Yellow Brick Road." It is a sort of prog epic opening to the track to the to the album um it's got like sound effects it's got this huge uh theatric piano uh and then bursts into eventually a kind of just super cool elton john rock song uh, when he was kind of at his uh at the peak of his powers and it's just so like epic and memorable that it even as quite a young boy when my dad was playing this to me that song left uh an impression because it is like a theater performance as it moves through it's like different stages i never i never thought about elton john and i'm not actually that fussed about most of his music i love that album elton john's slightly become a bit of a parody of himself these days but like this album and a couple kind of around it as well, I think are exceptional. I really like a, it's called Tumbleweed Connection. Yeah. I think that's another of the ones that I like. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure I've heard Yellow Brick Road. I mean, respect. I've got time for Elton John, although I was completely put off him by that Rocket Man film. I just made (laughs) me think I hated everything about him, his music, him. Oh, fair play. Well, I've, I've not seen it, but yeah, uh, maybe I won't bother. I was planning on watching it. And, uh, most, I think we've discussed this before. Most people loved it, but it, it just really had an effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> Ruined yeah. 50 years worth of music. Nice one. Um, but yeah, uh, Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, and uh, Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy were the two albums that my dad really loved. And so I heard those a lot as a kid. Yeah, I think, yeah, it, I'm glad that you've highlighted him, to be honest. Biggie J. Do you think he's treated as a bit of a joke at times? And I think he sort of is these days, but I, I also think he's, he's he's embraced that as well. I've seen him on mm-hmm. a few things where he's 
accepted the joke and it actually makes him quite endearing as an individual because he has been seen as a bit of a diva in the past but i think he just he accepts it now and buys into it and it makes him a much more like approachable sort of pop star i've got plenty of time for him if not necessarily his modern output of music okay i'm gonna go big at number three i think so my my top two are just completely reflective of me. This this one is is I don't know in a way it should be number one. I don't know. It's just reflective uh, of humanity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's deserving of a place in the in the Will Holden playlist. <laughs> but yeah, David Bowie, Space Oddity. I mean, yeah, it's already in the playlist. There you go. That that confirms its greatness, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a hell of a track, I think. It's one of his more famous ones, but every time I listen to it, it's a, it's a bit of a showstopper. I still think it's one of his best songs, to be honest. Um, I think it's a great album opener. I mean, it literally has the countdown, goes into the chorus where he hits those, like he does his own harmony and it's lush and you know, there's all sorts of orchestration. There's like all these fluttering flutes and like obviously the string pads and cool guitars. And yeah, at that point, he's just pretty unstoppable really, isn't he? His, uh, his run of records there, he's just absolutely killing it. Again, talking of artist periods, like my favourite period of Bowie is that sort of mid-70s mm-hmm. block I actually did look through plenty of Bowie albums and, and my favourite ones, and that is a very good example of a great opening track. But actually, for me, a lot of the opening tracks of his albums are not my favourite tracks. Yeah, I found that as well. I looked through others also, and there's, and there's just ones like, I yeah, like. Kind of, kind like I like Changes, that. you know? Yeah. Changes is cool, but um, Aladdin Sane, actually... Is it Aladdin Sane? It is Aladdin Sane opens that album. That's cool. I just, yeah, as I said, I, th- I still think Space Oddity is in, probably in his top five songs for me. Uh, it's, it's absolutely timeless. Um, and, yeah, again, like representing the uh, the little-known Elton John and the little-known David Bowie for all of our listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, great, superb choice. Yeah, it's nice that he's got a shout-out. Andy Pandy, you're number two. Yeah, I mean, I didn't weigh in on that because that was my number two, but oh, um, that's fine. No no issue at all, because at number two, I'm going to go with David Bowie, uh, Young Americans. I did I, find I, another one. I, yeah, I also looked through his list and was disappointed for the amount of albums that I like of his, where I just wasn't that fussed about the opening track. And I considered changes as well. However much of a great tune it is, Hunky Dory is such a good album, like almost perfect album. It actually falls like quite low down my list of like favorite tracks from that album. But I think it just shows how perfect that album is. Whereas Young Americans kind of does a thing that I've said before, like it was the end of his kind of glam rock period, didn't he? With Diamond Dogs, the last album? I think so. I think that's where the the change comes in um and then i don't think that young americans is his i i like the album quite a lot but it's not very david bowie <laughs> um, no. 
like what did he call it? Like his plastic funk, plastic, plastic soul. soul, yeah, plastic soul, plastic soul. yeah. Um, like period. And I think that the album is actually quite a good album, but I think just no, I quite it, like it as well. Yeah, it just it misses quite a lot of those kind of mm-hmm. Bowie key points on it. It's just a really good, like you said, it's like plastic soul album, yeah, fake soul album. <laughs> he knows um, what it is. But I think Young Americans is the absolute like standout track for it. Again, just sets the tone for the album. It's such a like catchy tune, proper, proper danceable song. So I have no issue with it going in my list instead. Uh, absolutely fine with that. Aces, an unproblematic shuffle. Mm. Okay, well, my number two, um, again, is from an artist who uh, is one of my absolute favourites. And there were a handful of choices could have made um but i've gone for running up that hill by kate bush shout outs for moving and babushka as well as my other like high runners for opening tracks i think i feel like i've kind of gone for the more obvious one i guess the biggest hit of those three um although i think all three have some commercial success nonetheless tons but yeah yeah but I think like running up that hill, I think was a, was also one of her big big hits, and it's a great song on a great album by someone I think is uh, an unbelievable uh, artist. And uh, yeah, felt it needed some representation. It was easy to find good opening tracks to albums because, at least amongst those three albums, almost every track on it is as good as the next one from start to finish. Um, and yeah, maybe I'm regretting not going for Babushka. It's got a bit more of a fun factor to it, but I'm sticking with it. We're in up that hill. KB. So yeah, I, I considered this as well, Will, and I, I would have gone I would have gone with moving because it's literally the very first song. Of that, a yeah, very first album. Is. Yeah, and I I don't know. That just adds something extra. Plus it is a, a good an point. amazing song as well. Yeah. Um, she was 17 when she wrote that album. It is insane. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. I also like, I think Lionheart always goes under the radar. I really like Symphony in Blue as well. That album in general, I think, is not much worse than the surrounding ones. I actually really like it. But yeah, I mean, we're just, I mean, Kate Bush, David Bowie, you know, like... Like I say, when we start getting into the uh, honourable mentions, it is just a, like, who's who of our favourite shit, basically. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's unarguably a great track. Nobody going to be shouting you down here. Absolutely. Right. Similarly to the the last two big names, really, I'm I'm pulling out Frank at this point, who encompasses the Pixies as well. Of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could you could draw a top five album openers just through his career. No problem. And it would be a super solid list. I mean, the Pixies pretty much don't have a bad song in their first iteration. You know, it's, it's sort of crazy, but the one I have chosen from his entire catalog is Los Angeles. Nice. From Frank Black self-titled. And the reason is, well, firstly, it's a absolute tune. Complete banger. Yeah. Obviously started his solo career off with that. I've got a personal connection to it as well. So my first ever gig was Frank Black and the Catholics in, I think, 2000. So I'd have been 15 or 16 at the time. 
I was familiar with some of his stuff, mainly the Pixies. I didn't really know all of it at all. I'd never heard Los Angeles and uh, they played that early on. And obviously it's got the acoustic intro and then the whole like London Astoria went like dark. They waited for about 30 seconds and then just kick into that like distorted riff with like a load of psychedelic lights and whatever. And there's a, you know, 15, 16 year old me, just idiot that I was just like, Oh my God. (laughs) something to be said for a, like a performance though like capturing the imagination yeah and it, it's just a great song i love the, i love the the kick in as i say it's got a killer riff and it's got a killer outro i mean i went through a very similar thing and i was um both frank black and pixies um hunting for for opening tracks and I started to narrow them down a bit. So I, I ended up with one Frank Black and one Pixies song. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Frank Black song is Los Angeles. Nice. Um, if you were to go Pixies, what would you go for? In to, see, we... to Celia Ann. Ah, yeah. I, I, it was a pretty close call between that and what I did end up going for, which was Trump Lamond. Which is magnificent. So I think it's yeah. a, a fucking corker. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I too mind that particular mine <laughs> pixie mine <laughs> nice it's your number one andy yeah also pulling out the big guns for number one um i'm gonna go paul simon still crazy after all these years Wunderbar. yeah i don't know what to say about this really i, I think most of the ones that i've picked have been quite upbeat like setting the tone for the album sort of thing. I just think it's a phenomenal song. Like it's a, mm. it's a ballad, but it's just, I, I don't think anybody writes heartfelt melodies and uniquely interesting chord changes. I, I mean, that song just dots all over the place, you know, like sections don't resolve and yeah. <laughs> different sections are in different keys. There's so many interesting chords changes throughout it interesting and it all fits yeah interesting picking patterns it's got a superb saxophone solo in it the worst thing in music louis smith um <laughs> i'll be right <laughs> but yeah that just comes out of nowhere just this like it just i don't know just lifts it and yeah no, the, I... the lyrics are perfect throughout it. it it's almost a perfect album but it's um i Again, much like Hunky Dory, it's hard to say it's my favourite song on the album, even because there are so many good songs on the album. But uh, but it's it's just unbelievably good. I completely agree with you. He's a he's a master songwriter. I actually think Still Crazy After All These Years is my favourite Paul Simon album. Yeah, um, I used to say Graceland's, but I'm not actually sure between the two. To be honest, I think this has. Um, as you say, just exceptional songs on it. And I, I think Still Crazy After All These Years numbers among its, its best handful, if not maybe it's very pinnacle. But it's a great song on a great album. And even the, like, you know, like the album finishes with like Silent Eyes, like a uh, much yes. more simplified, almost like throwaway piano-led ballads, and it's perfect. <laughs> like, it is such a good album. My Little Town was... I don't think a single off it, but it just sounds like a single, like such a, when it kicks in about halfway through, it's just mm-hmm. beastie. 
50 um, Ways to Leave Your Lover has one of the best drum beats known to man. Yep. Yeah, it's just, it's perfect, isn't it? <laughs> Gone at Last has a huge, uh, your favourite gospel singer. Yeah. I think it's a it's a big pull for me to Paul Simon's love of gospel. For um, sure. I, uh, I am unfamiliar. <laughs> I've heard that song. I've heard that song. I'll need to go and re-listen. Paul Simon falls into the category for me, similar to Elvis Costello, where I absolutely appreciate him and some of his stuff. I really like the rhythm and the saints, actually. I mean, that album's great. But, I um, like that album as well. It's quite like cussed down a lot of the time, but I also mm, like that way. It's it's super cool. Yeah. I think it's one of those where it just followed on. Was it just directly after Graceland? It was the one after, yeah. And I think after having all of the sort of African-inspired and played on rhythms and things that it seemed like a step down or a step back to ordinary Simon but actually I think the songwriting has got quite a lot of kind of exotic elements on there I think that's fair but I think the songwriting is still as good it just I think it didn't have quite the spectacle that Graceland had yeah maybe yeah I get that I'd have to I have to revisit honestly just like watch a live video of him playing it's still crazy it's Mm -hmm. Like just <laughs> watching his, uh, you know, the core patterns and stuff that he that he creates is just love the man. Great, great choice, great man, great album. Is that my number one? Then is that am I got the? Yeah, cool. We swap places, so I'm uh, confused. I mean, I'm pretty pleased to say I've got all the way to number one, and I haven't had to make any changes, which is uh, which is cool. I think we've had a pretty uh, big breadth of of options in there. My number one is Six by Manson from the album Six by Manson. On the old long oh. list. Again, a bit like Funeral for a Friend, it's just kind of got that prog epic opener. It jumps about to like several different sections, each section just being as awesome as the one before it. I really like, um, I must admit, I don't actually know much detail about Manson, the band, but I really like the singer's voice. I Paul Draper. Got, Paul Draper, thank you very much. I think he has a super unique and like really enjoyable voice to me. I think when they are kind of at their worst, Manson, I think is when they are kind of at the most meandering. But this song has like constant forward drive and momentum. And I say like it's is it about six minutes long? Yeah, it's good old, uh, at least. Good old brute of a song, but it flies by because each new section is super interesting. And yeah, love it. I can't think of another song that's that long that has such re listenability. It's interesting sure. because that album was one of my favorites growing up, and I've fallen out of favor with it a bit. But yeah, I still, I still really like that as an opener for sure. Some killer production on there as well. Yeah, I think it's just a bit overwrought for me. I've kind of anything, I don't know. I mean, respect rose considerably when I I wasn't even aware of The Prisoner at the time. And Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that it's basically a concept album. Yeah. Sort of about that is is pretty damn cool uh, for an up-and-coming indie band at the time to, Mm -hmm. to do. 
And to be fair, it, it was it was a daring thing to do anyway, as you say. Like it's completely at odds with their first album, which was you know quite quite poppy, really. I mean, they kind of came up in the time of Britpop mm-hmm. um, in Manchester, and although you hear that sometimes, you hear a little bit of the sort of in Spiral Carpets, Stone Roses esque melodies and, and chord changes, but they just stand completely unique in that field yeah. of, of Manchester bands of that era. And I, I really appreciate that about them. Like in a, in a wave of popularity for one thing, they just went, nah, <laughs> this is what we do. And that, I think that's cool. Somewhere out there, uh, there is a recording of me doing a version of, um, I think it's called Inverse Midas off that album, the piano song. Nice. No Somewhere one, on, no one needs to into ever it. hear it. Um, <laughs> yeah. that'll be the uh, podcast opening this week yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there may be a delay on the release as I spend three months tracking it down but yeah <laughs> but once we find it good god well um, my number one's more in line with Will's I think uh, it's not uh, it's uh, from Copper Blue by Sugar, which is the act we act. And it's just an absolutely kick-ass song. Love it. Do either of you two know it? I've got to say, absolutely uh, no idea. I'm sorry, bud. Nope. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, you, yes, you guys is... need to go and listen to Copper Blue. Definitely give it a listen on the basis that you have kind of... I've never, never heard of this. We've never talked about this before. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. This, so it's uh, it's real interesting to me because of that. It's just a power pop, like kind of punk record from the early nineties. I think it's ninety two. It's Bob Mould who uh, was in Huskadoo, or Huskadoo. I don't know how to say it, but uh, yeah, I think it's the pinnacle of his uh, releases. It's just one of the most listenable to guitar albums. Just super, super catchy songs. Um, I think he massively influenced the pixies and then this record was him sort of taking that influence back from them so it it does have a bit of a pixies flavor it just really holds up for me the first time i heard it i was camping as a as a child and we were playing cards and someone put it on on a little pair of uh you know portable speakers and that that riff which you just said was uh just chugging immediately i was like this sounds pretty cool then it came with that little guitar line. And I was like, I'm liking this. Then the drums kick in. It's just, and it's got a super cool guitar solo. Is it one of the greatest songs of all time? Absolutely not. <laughs> but it's definitely my pick for, for number one. I just grabs me immediately. I think it's a, a kick-ass opener. Awesome. Well, I mean, it's inspired me enough. I'm going to go check it out. Yeah, definitely. I would be surprised if you didn't get something out of Copper Blue. I'd be very surprised. It's definitely within my kind of general wheelhouse anyway, to be honest. That kind of 90s uh, indie grunge-ish. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's it. There's, there's nothing particularly remarkable about it, but it, it does what it does for me very well. Yeah, sweet. Okay, well, with that said, I think that brings us to the end of, of our chats. Uh, next week we are going to have another guest episode. Uh, we're going to bring in our friend, Phil. 
Um, so Phil's choices for next week. His film is 1992's Candyman. His album is 2021 Magic Mirror by Pearl Charles. I assume that's the right way around. And his top five is top five rock star haircuts. <laughs> Which oh, is God. typically Phil. <laughs> oh, Christ alive. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So thank you for joining us, listener. <laughs> Always so. funny. Always funny. Uh, but join us next week or we'll come back for another pint or two. Goodbye.